Our scripture passage this morning is in the letter to the Romans, and I'm just going away from 2 Corinthians for a few weeks to, um, to talk about some of the, the issues that the elders have been working on, actually, for over the last, uh, I don't know, five or six months related to the identity of our church. And, and in part, it coincided with our 25th anniversary. We, we are looking at the, the next 25 years as a new chapter in the life of this church. And so we work to discern issues related to our purpose, our mission, our vision. We set out those values. We just wanted to identify what are those core values that are at the heart of what and how we do what we do. And then we work through um, some priorities. And and I'm not going to cover all that today, but I would like just to work through, um, as part of this introduction, I suppose, um, uh, what we refer to as our purpose, our mission, and vision, and then just to highlight the core values. These will also be on our website, so you can go there to see them uh, in the near future. They're not up just yet, but, but I wanted to just show you kind of where the elders have been thinking and to help just clarify um, matters that have to do with our identity, and, and we hope just values that will continue to guide us as we go forward. So I don't know if you can put that, um, th- that slide. So this is what we're, we're calling, you know, our highest purpose. You know, this is our ultimate reason for why we exist, and this shouldn't surprise anyone. Um, this is just taken from uh, the first question of the shorter catechism. Why do we exist? Well, it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We always want to keep in mind, this is where we start, this is where we end, that our highest purpose, and then we have lower uh, callings underneath this, of course, but our highest is to give glory to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy uh, Spirit. The next statement is goes to our mission. Uh, And this should also be very familiar. We didn't change this. We're just changing what we're calling it. We previously referred to it as our purpose statement. Now we're calling it a mission statement. This is what we seek to do. Some of the the critical um, pieces of our calling as a church. And so it's just simple. Following Jesus, um, that's our emphasis on becoming like Christ, being his disciple. Following Jesus. How? By loving God. And and there we're we're especially emphasizing our worship uh, practices. Loving one another, this is our fellowship and, and our community that we want to grow together. And then serving the world, this is the calling to make disciples of all nations, um, teaching them everything I've commanded, baptizing in the name of uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, um, serving both locally and, as we'll see, um, ab- abroad. And then this leads us to our vision statement. And this is where I'm going to camp out for, this is where Romans 14 comes in, is, is actually this, this vision statement that I want to speak to uh, more fully. But, but in terms of this vision, what do we seek to be? This is, you know, and honestly, when you're talking like vision versus mission, there's overlap. But we're trying to say, okay, what would, if we accomplish our purpose as a church, what would that look like, at least for us as a church, Okay. This is something we strive to be, to be a faithful, healthy, and spirit-filled church. Those three um, uh, adjectives are important. Um, Faithful, you know, it goes to that idea that it's not just success that we're interested in. 
we really want to make our heavenly Father um, pleased. We want to hear at the end of the age that commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. <laughs> and then healthy. And, and we, we put this word in here because um, we want to, first of all, if we're healthy, this will put us out of the category of just merely ordinary. <laughs> healthy um, is also in contrast to perfect. We'll never be a perfect church this side of heaven, but we do strive to be mature. We do strive to be healthy in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships with one another, in how we deal with differences and disagreements and conflict. And so that goes to that word healthy that we believe that Christ calls us to. And then this third um, uh, phrase, a spirit-filled church. And, And I'll come back to this. This is part of the sermon as well. But just to highlight that our great dependence to be who God wants us to be is not in our strength, not in our creativity and, and brilliance. It's in the spirit of the living God. Anything good that we hope to accomplish will only come through the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And then the second part of this vision is this, promoting the kingdom of God. You'll notice in, our, in some of the hymns that we've sung and the hymn we'll, we'll close, have to do with the kingdom of God or, or recognizing that Christ is our king. And so we want, we as a church are called to promote the kingdom of God. And a, and a large part of that is through proclamation and then making it visible in our lives and throughout the greater Cincinnati area. So it's a little bit of a run-on sentence. Um, forgive us for that. But, but the key piece here is, and, and this just goes back to a, a, a phrase that one of our um, uh, the reformers from the 16th century highlighted that he, when Calvin called the church and said that the church was called to make the invisible kingdom visible. And so we're taking that and saying, what would that kingdom look like? You know, what is that kingdom, that future kingdom that begins to break in on the present? What ought that to look like? We want to make that kingdom visible, both in our lives, our individual lives, as we're becoming more like Christ, but also, and this goes to throughout the greater Cincinnati area, one of the, the, the uh, I think that the um, uh, pieces of discernment that came to us as elders uh, was that though this church is physically located in this Mount Healthy community, and we do feel a special calling to be a blessing to this community, it really hit us, however, that the people of the church And that's really what the church is. The church isn't really a building, biblically speaking. The church is the gathered people of God. Well, it turns out in God's providence that the gathered people of God here at Evangelical Community Church are pretty spread out. (laughs) For, you know, um, Indiana and throughout uh, the the north and east parts of of Cincinnati and and then here in the northwest corridor, um, we are spread out throughout the greater Cincinnati region. And so we just realized that this is our footprint. This is where ECC is called to serve. It's called to minister throughout the greater Cincinnati area because the church is the people and the church ministers wherever the people are. And so we just realized we need to think in terms of the greater Cincinnati, in terms of the horizon of ministry. 
And then there are these five core values. I'm going to work through these. I'm just almost going to just read them. Um, uh, we have five. We struggled with six. <laughs> we wanted to get down to four, but then we ended up with five. It was kind of a compromise. Um, but the core values go to the, the foundation on which we advance our mission and vision. What, what are these values that we want to guide us? Well, number one, practicing Christ-centered weekly worship. Our weekly gathering is critical to the life of this church. Very often, you've heard me say, if there's one thing you can do to get your spiritual life off into the right direction, it is to join a local church for its worship on a weekly basis. Not bi-weekly, not once a month, weekly. That means if you're on vacation, we encourage you, find a place to worship. We know that's not always possible, but we encourage it in any case. So practicing Christ-centered weekly worship. Then there's training hearts and minds to follow Jesus in all things. This is the value of full, complete discipleship and the complete lordship of Jesus over every area of life. Uh, Next slide. Doing life and ministry together through the week. Now, you've just heard me say, if, if there's one thing you can do, it's be a part of a church's worship and part of a local church on a weekly basis. But we also recognize that if we are going to be who God really wants us to be, we need to be together, not just on Sunday mornings. We need to be rubbing shoulders with one another. And this is where we've really emphasized the importance of community and small groups, but also just working shoulder to shoulder in ministry and service. Uh, Next slide. Depending on the power of God through prayer. Again, prayer is really the engine. Prayer is what connects us to the power of God. The best things only come in answer to prayer. And I think this is to cultivate dependence within us and the ability to bring glory to God so that when those prayers are answered, you see who gets the glory. Well, God gets the glory. And then this last one, reaching the world with the good news, that is well, we're, the gospel, reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'll come back to this in uh, future weeks too, just talking about what, what, what is the good news of Jesus. But this just goes to our, our calling to proclaim Christ, not just locally, but this has been part of us is throughout the world. And we'll continue to support those who are going into some of the hardest, unreached places around the world. So these are um, uh, um, both our our, uh, purpose and mission mission and vision, along with those core values. And and I didn't get to our priorities. I'll come back to that. Um, But I just can't do that today. And that leads us to our passage, which is, well, it's only one verse. But it goes to just the nature of the kingdom of God. Would you stand just for our reading from Romans chapter 14, verse 17? The Apostle Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds 
that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The very first part of this verse links us to the context of the entire chapter of Romans chapter 14. Verse 17 just begins, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. What does he mean by this? Well, in part, the apostle Paul is speaking of the kingdom of God here in this context with special reference to the church, and specifically the church at Rome. So right away we see this connection then. The kingdom of God is, a, is a, an aspect of God's reign that, that goes beyond the boundaries of, of the church or local churches. But there's also a sense in which there is much overlap between this concept of the kingdom of God and how it is um, made manifest, how it is made visible within the world, which is most directly and importantly through the church, through the Christian church, uh, and through local churches that are gathering all around the world on at least a weekly basis. Well, the background, though, what leads to him mentioning this this thing about food and, and drink uh, eating and drinking, is that there's a, been a conflict that has arisen within this Roman church. And it appears, he doesn't tell us um, the explicit issue. There probably just isn't time and space to do that. But what he does show us is that um, there was a dispute over two matters. One was over what kinds of food were Christians permitted to eat? Um, what kinds of food should we consider clean versus unclean? And then the second issue had to do with special days. Within the new covenant community, the church, um, should the Sabbath be recognized and um, experienced and celebrated the same way it was in the Old Testament um, under the law of Moses? And so it refers to Sabbaths and, or special days and the celebration of these things. And so you can imagine, again, in this transition period from the old covenant to now the, the new covenant having been instituted by Jesus, there were all kinds, there, there were lots of these kinds of matters that were being hotly disputed. And even though the Apostle Paul himself takes a clear stand, at least on the issue of food, when he declares all food is acceptable. All food is clean. He nevertheless comes back around to say this. He, he doesn't believe that in this case, this is an essential gospel issue. It's not like in this particular case, they're probably Jewish Christians that are making these distinctions. You know, they, they, you can't eat pork. You know, that, that's off limits. And they're only eating vegetables, it, it sounds like in this passage. Um, and there may be certain days, maybe they're saying, we still should be meeting on Saturday, or we, we need to be recognizing the Jewish feast days. And, and what the apostle says is, before we look at those issues directly, he, he, he wants to make some, some general statements. And, and those general statements that he makes here is, 
because they're not suggesting everybody needs to see these issues about clean and unclean food and, and special days as, you know, the, you have to do this in order to gain God's full acceptance. That's not what they were saying. They were just saying for themselves, they felt like they couldn't eat certain kinds of food, they couldn't probably drink certain kinds of drinks, and they had to recognize certain days. Um, well, the apostle's saying, okay, in this case, we have differences about how we live our lives. Even in this congregation, we have differences about how Sunday should be recognized. There are some who think, you know, um, no recreation. You know, we, the, the, the Sabbath really should be experienced in a, in a fairly um, strict and, uh, way in which we are, we are giving it to worship and, and to acts of mercy and fellowship. And others say, oh, no, it's fine to, to do things that recreate us, that renew us, that, that this, the Sabbath was made for man and, and, and not man for the Sabbath uh, way of thinking. And so there's still healthy differences even to the present on these kinds of issues. And what Paul just says is, these are not essential gospel kingdom issues. And two things, he says, every person does need to think about these sorts of issues because they will stand before God. They will be judged by their master. So that's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is, and because they will stand before God, there's no need on these sorts of issues for them to stand before each other in judgment. And the reality is, it just goes to our hearts that we begin to argue for certain positions about, you know, spiritual life and and, um, uh, certain ways of thinking about ethics, um, that we we can make them kind of these gospel issues. And Paul's saying, no, we need to distinguish between those things that are actually essential issues versus those that are non-essential. And this is where part of our denomination's motto comes from. Um, Glenn Francis mentioned this last week, that the motto of the uh, EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is this, in essentials, unity. We stand together on matters that are at the core of our faith. In non-essentials, liberty, that there's freedom to disagree. In all things, charity. In all things, love. Love is to be a critical mark of the church. And I think this is, that motto is very consistent with what Paul is teaching here in Romans 14. Well, this is just the background to what Paul has to say about the kingdom of God. And he tells us that the kingdom of God is defined by, you know, three characteristics in this one verse. It's defined by righteousness and peace and joy and then all of these are kind of the, the outworking of the Holy Spirit. So all of these kingdom marks are the outworkings of the presence and the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so that's where I want, I want to start with is, is just how he ends this passage where he says, you know, he talks about joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's start with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and just as background, a little further background, um, the New Testament teaches that there is a sense in which God's kingdom is already present in the world, okay? So this is a critical uh, principle with respect to the kingdom of God, how we are to wrap our minds around this idea of the kingdom of God. In one sense, this kingdom is here. 
In one sense, the kingdom of God is present in this uh, contemporary period of time, in the, the entire age of the church. It is already present. But there's quite another sense in which it is not present in its fullness. It's not uh, a perfected kingdom. It is not, okay, so um, when Pilate talked to Jesus about his kingdom, Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? I just said the kingdom's present. And Jesus says the kingdom's is at hand. Repent, because it is at hand in his person. So what does he mean when he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world? What he means is, is that the kingdom of God is not to be viewed like the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of God is, is not like the Roman Empire. It, it doesn't have this political uh, government and national boundaries. It doesn't um, uh, have an army to defend it um, or, or things of this nature. In fact, the, the kingdom... Um, uh, that is here, uh, is an invisible kingdom for the most part. It is spiritual. And, and so, the, so we distinguish the kingdom that is already from the kingdom that is not yet. And the not yet kingdom is the future kingdom that places like in Isaiah and Revelation describe as a place where there'll be uh, no more tears, no more mourning. Why? Because there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. Satan will have been cast and, and all of his minions will have been cast into the lake of fire. And so in the kingdom to come, this is a kingdom that in some sense will be a return to Eden. It will, but it won't be just like this little garden. It will be a worldwide Eden. It will be a place in which uh, humankind is able to live in the presence of the glory of God. We will be able to live in the presence of the glorified Jesus. And we will be able to look into his face and to see him as he is. And part of this kingdom, of course, will be that we ourselves will be changed. We ourselves will have new, newly resurrected glorified bodies. So when we talk about the kingdom, one way to think about the kingdom, and now I'm going to use a theological term. I'm preparing you. Think of the kingdom of God in the present time as an eschatological reality. Okay, that's the big, that's the maybe $100 word now. Um, and with inflation, an eschatological reality. That is, what the kingdom is now is the future reality of the kingdom in all its fullness. Another theological term we could use of that kingdom is that is the consummated kingdom. That's the way of describing the kingdom in its fullness and glory. And it's an eschatological eschatological reality in the present because what's happening is the spirit is taking some of those those aspects of the future kingdom and he's making them a reality in the present. So the kingdom in the present is in some sense an inbreaking of the future kingdom now. Okay? An inbreaking of the future kingdom. And this means that there are supernatural elements 
to this kingdom that ought to be a contrast to the surrounding, to life in the surrounding world. And that's what Paul is describing briefly, very briefly, within this passage. A chief aspect of the inbreaking of the future perfected kingdom into our reality is, in fact, the presence and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit on the lives of Christian believers. The Spirit, if you just read the prophecy in Joel, it speaks of the, the Spirit being poured out on all flesh in, in a, in a, um, after those days. It, it refers to it. If you're just reading the prophecy of Joel, it looks like Joel is speaking of the future consummated age, the future when Jesus returns and, and banishes all evil and sin and, and sets up a reconstructed new world. That's what it looks like Joel is speaking about when he describes the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. But surprisingly, the outpouring of the Spirit does not wait until the future kingdom. It only awaits the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father, now sends the Spirit of God. And he pours out the Spirit, not just on, you know, special people, the priests and the kings and the prophets of the Old Testament, and only in, the, in a way that would help them accomplish their jobs. That's what the Spirit does in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Spirit is poured out on all believers, all those who place their faith, men and women, children, boys and girls alike. And this is, in fact, a sign of the inbreaking of that future world into the present. This righteousness, peace, and joy are kingdom realities made possible, though never perfectly, because of the presence and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we put spirit-filled church. The, 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 the centrality of the spirit in the age of the church needs to be recognized and appreciated. And so there are these three qualities that Paul highlights. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I just want to take a brief look at these qualities, beginning with the idea that the kingdom is marked by righteousness. Now, in some sense, there's a little bit of disagreement on how to understand a term like righteousness, especially in the book of Romans. (laughs) Because in the book of Romans, the entire first section, chapters 3 through 5 especially, are describing the righteousness that sinners need in order to um, gain access to a holy God. Um, So the the first three chapters are talking about the righteousness that is a righteousness from outside of us, a perfect righteousness that sinners need to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. And, And chapters three through five show us that this is a righteousness that Christ has merited for us and when he died on the cross, this righteousness, and, and when we, we place our faith and trust in Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven by what Jesus um, uh, uh, paid for on the cross through his atoning death, but something else happens, that his perfect righteousness is credited. 
Um, the, the theological term for this is we have been justified. That is literally declared righteous because of our faith. And we need this alien righteousness. So this is not a righteousness that we cultivate from within ourselves by being really good you know, people. That's not the kind of righteousness Romans is earlier describing. This is a justifying righteousness that all um, individuals who trust Christ receive as a gift um, by grace through faith. By grace through faith, we have this alien righteousness where we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And it's tempting to apply that idea of righteousness when we come to this kingdom of righteousness. But in the second half of Romans, Romans is applying the truths um, that, are, that he's, he's uh, explained in the earlier part of Romans, and he's applying it in terms of, okay, if you actually have this credited, imputed righteousness of Jesus, well, it should make a difference. It should make a difference in the way you live, in the way you think, in the way you behave. And so when we come to Romans 14, 17, I think this righteousness is the outworking of of the righteousness of, of God. This is our ethical, moral righteousness um, that is here being described. And, and again, um, Paul is, is applying um, these issues not to this kind of nebulous kingdom, but specifically to the kingdom as it is made manifest within the church. This righteousness should be seen in our ethics that are consistent with God's laws, especially guided by the Ten Commandments. Our righteousness should be seen in how we treat others, even and perhaps especially those who oppose us. It should be seen in our respect and in our love for all people, even with those who, who oppose us. We need to, to treat um, those who are, you know, stand on the other side of issues, whatever they may be, we always still need to treat them with dignity, um, with respect and love. It should be in our, uh, this righteousness seen on our willingness to serve. It should be, make us look more and more like Christ, not just as individuals, but also as a church. The righteousness and love of the early church was notable. One fourth century pagan Roman emperor um, he was known as Julian the Apostate. <laughs> but this emperor just wanted to pull his hair out when it came to the Christians um, that, that were spread out through his empire. And so he writes this um, uh, to a, a, a more local ruler. He says, When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, Julian was a pagan emperor, then I think those impious Galileans, okay, who are the impious Galileans? That's how we refer to the followers of Jesus, because Jesus was from Galilee. They're these impious Galileans, um, these Christians. They observed this fact of the needs, and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. The Galileans also begin with their so-called love feasts, their hospitality, their service of tables, that is where the early Christians provided food uh, for the hungry. For they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names. And the result is 
that they have led very many into atheism. Now, why would he call? So what he's saying is they're becoming followers of Jesus. Why is that atheism? Was well, atheism from his uh, vantage point because they were then rejecting the whole pantheon, you see, of the Roman and Greek gods to follow one uh, uh, God-man, Jesus Christ, um, as part of the triune God. We want to be known like those early church Christians. We want to be known for our Christ-like righteousness. Well, the kingdom of God is also marked by peace. In the back of Paul's mind, maybe this important passage from Isaiah 32, where a lot of these themes that are found in Romans 14 come together. Listen to this. This is a prophecy in um, Isaiah 32. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15, but it's in the context. First, he's, he's describing the painfulness and the suffering that will come as a result of the Israelites being exiled. Okay, great pain and loss because of exile. But then he gives them this hope of a future time following the exile. He says this, listen to the language. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high, there's the presence of the spirit. And the result of the spirit being poured out will be this. And the wilderness, now these are metaphors, the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, picture of life and fruitfulness. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then here are the uh, further consequences of the outpouring of the Spirit. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, and here I think he's defining this peace, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now, all of that, I believe, I think Paul, this is, I think, at least one of the passages that Paul has in the back of his mind when he's describing the kingdom of God, the outpouring of the Spirit in terms of righteousness, peace, and joy. And this peace is connected with the righteousness and it's connected with the life-giving power of the Spirit. It leads to security, security specifically, especially with the Lord. And it leads to to rest. How much? (laughs) Who here thinks that the modern-day church is described by the term rest or restfulness? I don't see any hands. (laughs) This is a key mark of the kingdom, the rest of Christ. And where this peace is experienced, first beginning with, you see, it begins, just like righteousness does, it begins with our having peace with God, that God himself is no longer against us, that he is for us, that he loves us, that he is with us, and that he promises to supply our needs. Let God be God. And where we're able to get that right, then we're able to dwell in that fertile field, that we're able to experience the quietness of heart that seems uh, 
such a rarity uh, today. And where there's this peace, Paul goes on to say, just two verses later in Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual, uh, uh, mutual upbuilding. So now he's applying this peace, this peace with God, this peace of heart in terms of our relationships with one another. And he says it has to be pursued. This isn't, you know, this isn't something that just happens passively, but we have to be active and intentional in guarding and maintaining that peace with one another. And then finally, the kingdom is marked by joy. And joy is just a natural byproduct of new life in the Holy Spirit. It is, in fact, like peace, one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. It is not the momentary exhilaration we experience as a result of some success or victory or achievement in our lives. No, it's it's a deeper reality. And it can ebb and flow with the circumstances of life. And it can be lost because of the grief of sin. It can be lost because of guilt. And when we sin, remember, the spirit that has been poured out upon us, how is that spirit? What's the number one adjective used to describe the spirit? Holy. If you're not living in, if you're not pursuing holiness and keeping your debts clean with the Lord and with one another, you're going to be grieving the spirit within you. You're going to be sabotaging the the work and the power of the spirit in your life. So we all must pursue um, uh, uh, righteousness and forgiveness on a daily, regular basis. Much of our lack of joy stems from unbelief. Uh, We're depressed because we really don't trust God. We really don't believe what he says is true, that he will take care of us, that he will bring us safely into the future heavenly kingdom. And so rather than listen to God's word, rather than keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we're just so distracted by all the circumstances and the situations that are taking place around us, uh, in the world around us. And what's the result? We lose heart. We lose heart. And so what's, the, what's part of the solution? Well, it's what the psalmist says right away in Psalm 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates what? Day and night. That's where the Lord wants us to keep our eyes, to keep our vision on his word, on his promises, being fixed especially on Jesus. The word of God, we, are, we know, is a primary means of grace that the Spirit uses to promote health and growth, to promote righteousness, peace, and joy within us. And so we have to press upon our minds the truths that we are loved, that God provides, that he is preparing for us a future home that is a, a true and eternal kingdom. So again, what is just one way to describe the the, the preferred future for the church, well, it is to be a faithful, healthy, spirit-filled church, promoting the kingdom of God and making it visible in our lives and throughout the greater Cincinnati area. Would you pray with me?
Our God and our Father, Lord, it is a blessing to be citizens of your kingdom. Lord, it is an untold blessing to have be recipients of the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you would fan, uh, fan into flame the Spirit within us, that our eyes would be increasingly opened to the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, and that together, Lord, we, we would be the kind of church, um, a, a glimpse of that future kingdom to the surrounding world, um, and this all by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would make it so. Increase our faith, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.